At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. So welcome to a special extra episode of Buried Truths. For those of you who've had questions about our host, Hank Klibanoff, how he got interested in civil rights cold cases, why he wanted to tell this story, what led to the creation of this podcast, we thought we'd take a moment to fill you in. So WABE in Atlanta produced the podcast, and one of their reporters, Ross Terrell, recently spoke with Hank. Here's the conversation. Hey, Hank, thanks for joining us to sit down and talk about the backstory behind the Barry Truths podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. Thank you. So to get started, tell me a little bit about your interest in these cold cases. What got you started in this podcast and wanting to tell these stories? You know, it's like anything. It's sometimes hard to know when it all really began. Um, in recent years, it began uh, when journalists across the South began investigating a bunch of these stories. Now, there's one journalist in Jackson, Mississippi, Jerry Mitchell. He's been doing this for 20, 25 years and has had a hand in the reopening of the Medgar Evers, uh, the killing of, of Medgar Evers and the Birmingham church bombing and another a uh, fellow named Ernest Avance convicted of uh, killing Ben Chester White there been and, and Vernon Damer in Hattiesburg. So he's done quite a few. But as time has gone on, other journalists got interested in it and saw there were great opportunities to ultimately bring justice or at least to bring closure to families. And so the several of these journalists went to the Center for Investigative Reporting, now Reveal at the Center for Investigative Reporting, California had said, can you help get us some support? And uh, they, they were able to get some financial support, and they called me and asked me if I would help coordinate the various journalists across the South. At the time, I was managing editor of the AJC, and I really didn't have the time. Uh, so, But when I left the AJC almost exactly 10 years ago, uh, I called them back up and said I would be interested because I just think these are compelling stories. And uh, so I worked with journalists over in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. Uh, no one was looking at Georgia. And uh, I decided that I would do that myself in some way, form, or fashion. And that way, form, or fashion was, uh, became sort of concentrated in, in a course that I teach at Emory University. Which uh, is titled? The Georgia Civil Rights Cold Cases Project. And so in 2011, I had applied to Emory for a, uh, an endowed chair position and was quite fortunate to get that position. And one of my pitches was that if, if I come to Emory, I'd like to start teaching history in a different way. And it's through these, teaching history through these unpunished, unresolved, racially motivated murders that took place in Georgia history. So you talk about your teaching background and your students help out with this podcast. How does your teaching background play into telling these stories when you mix that with journalism? Well, if anything, I have a journalism background more than teaching. You know, I was I was a reporter and a uh, editor for 30 
five years, 36 years uh, in Mississippi at the Boston Globe, Philadelphia Inquirer, and here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So um, I knew a lot more about journalism than I did about teaching. Um, I was fortunate to pair up at Emory uh, with a uh, professor, Brett Gadsden, uh, uh, who was in the African-American Studies Department and later also the History Department. And he and I decided, let's teach it as a course together. And it was a magical combination in many ways because he brought to it the, you know, all the knowledge and skill of a, of a classically trained historian, you know, who got his bachelor's and his master's and his Ph.D. in history. And I, you know, at the same time had written a book of, of history um, and um, I had learned a lot of the history, uh, but I would never have called myself a historian. I was a journalist. And so I brought to the class some journalistic writing techniques and journalistic reporting techniques uh, that meant developing resources that perhaps a classic historian wouldn't always know. Uh, and there were plenty of things he brought to the classroom that I didn't know. And it was a real nice uh, duet that we had going there for several years. What role did your students play in this? Well, it evolved. I mean, the first class we had was only five students. Let me just say that. And the second class we taught was only six. But over time, the, it caught on. And the next thing, we had 11 students and 14. And now we, you know, we cap it at 16, 15 or 16. And uh, we've had that you know, for years now. Uh, the students uh, come in knowing very little. I mean, they may have broad brush knowledge of civil rights or of African-American history or of Southern history, but this is all new knowledge to most of them. And what we, our textbook almost inevitably, and I mean case after case, is records that I've obtained from the government, from the federal government through the Federal Freedom of Information Act. And so I will hand them, the students on opening day, 230 pages of redacted uh, pages from the FBI case file on the James Brazier case, a man killed in 1958 for driving a brand new car. Or I hand them, you know, 200 pages or 119 pages in this case or that case. Sometimes it's redacted, sometimes not. And then there's a method after that to how we bring the students up to speed. They have to read that, have to read it thoroughly. They build a timeline of everything that happened. And, that t and it's an evolving timeline. They're adding to the timeline pretty much the first half of the semester and developing character studies and trying to figure out what do we know and what don't we know and what do we want to know that we don't know. And that becomes, uh, they sort of figure out the path from there. It's the same thing I learned in a newsroom. Um, and I maybe had forgotten a little bit. Uh, in the newsroom, I learned as a reporter to trust my own instincts and was fortunate to have editors who went with me on that. As an editor, I learned to trust my reporter's instincts. I think the reporters would say that. They might disagree. And I've learned at Emory in the classroom how to trust the students' instincts. I want to go back to the title of this podcast, The Buried Truths, uh, and specifically the word truth. Why do you call it that? Why do you call it buried truth? Well, there is a truth that has eluded recognition and reckoning. You know, there, you can go and look at the whole case of uh, the one, the first season, Isaiah Nixon, 
you learn that Isaiah Nixon was shot and killed, you know, in uh, September of 1948 on Election Day. And by according to the sheriff, according to eyewitnesses, according to other people, you know, he was killed because he voted. He was active in the NAACP. It was the same day that the head of the NAACP was brutally beaten uh, and others were warned. And he ultimately was killed late that day. And according to the testimony and the sheriff and others, the, the two white men who showed up said, we have two questions. You know, did you vote? Yes, I reckon I did. And who'd you vote for? And he told them, and it wasn't the candidate they wanted. So the truth never had its day. The truth never had its reckoning. And uh, this is a way of bringing truth. And as you'll hear uh, in the podcast, there are others, including one very surprising person who absolutely agrees that justice was denied because the truth didn't come out. This is for people who may not know a lot of investigative journalism, um, but in a podcast form. And when you talk about having a class and having those students, sometimes younger minds can perceive stories a lot differently. Um, How do you try to use that to your benefit when looking at these civil rights cases, when you have people growing up now in the age of a number of uh, Black Lives Matter and a number of uh, perceived civil rights violations? How does that help you in telling these stories? That's a really good question. We, I started this course with Brett in 2011, which is before Trayvon Martin. And but Brett Gadsden was terrific at, at this as a partner. I have to say, if, I, if I refer to Brett in the past, it's, it's only because he's moved to Northwestern and he's teaching there. Okay. Uh, so, so he's I, still with us. He's still with okay. us, right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, we, this was before this sort of eruption of cases of, of African-Americans coming under attack for seemingly minimal or no misdeed. Or, in, to put it another way, in which excessive force was used in these cases. So this was not about, this was not a response to any of that. This was just looking, this is a history course. Not necessarily as a historian would look at it, but as a journalist would look at it. And, and, or the two of them in combination, which is the better way to put it. I, I actually studiously avoided bringing up these cases as we went forward into the other semesters to see if the students would. And it would come up occasionally toward the end of the semester. But at that point, no one had to make connect the dots. I didn't have to connect the dots for them. It's there. You know, you cannot hear the story of A.C. Hall in Macon, killed in 1962 by two police officers without immediately thinking, if you know this case, of the Chicago case of Laquan McDonald. That was the one where the police withheld the video for, I think it was over a year, and denied they shot him in the back. or anything. And then you look at the video, and they said he turned to the right. They thought he had a gun. When, while he's running, he turns toward them. They thought he had a gun, so they shot him. But the video discredits that claim. But you cannot think of, of learn about A.C. Hall without thinking of the Laquan McDonald story. The one pattern that I've seen with students is that they come in, they are fascinated, first of all, to be sitting there with a textbook that is old FBI records. And it's, uh, it's an insider glimpse that they're getting. And I think the students just had no idea how the details of what went on. They have a broad brush understanding of what racism was like. And, and sometimes it does get reduced to that 
iconic image of two water fountains with white and colored signs over them. And, and, and in fact, when I make my presentations, I say, you know, you've got to dig beneath that. I mean, that's just a quick and easy symbol. Um, that's just, that's a lollipop for understanding, you know, and it's, it's inviting you to go deeper. And so that's what we're going to do. And most of these cases, the records just become mesmerizing to the students. And then they start finding records that we, I didn't, that I've never seen. You know, how'd you find, I mean, one student went down on one case to the National Archives Atlanta, down in Morrow, and found two to 3,000 pages that we had not known existed of transcript from a civil trial. And it was unbelievable. It was, it was Indiana Jones discovering whatever <laughs> that thing was with all the gold, right? You know, because the Q&A of the transcripts, the question and answers, the, the examination and cross-examination just revealed so much, not just about the case, but about the life and times of these people. And, it, you know, I'm not, without going into detail in the story, I mean, the, these white cops were insanely jealous that there was a black man who could afford a brand new car and they couldn't. And they kept harassing him, harassing him, and ultimately killed him. And um, sure enough, you find during the trial, you know, during the, um, the testimony, reading the transcript, that indeed he did make more money than they did. He was working five jobs. <laughs> Looking at that, I mean, you grew up in Alabama. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up here in, in, mm-hmm. in Georgia. Are there truths happening now that you think are being buried that 10 years, 20 years down the line, somebody will have to come back and look at more than just that iconic photo and actually dig deeper and find out what happened? Boy, I tell you, I, I have to say the verdicts that we've seen come down. Um, from afar, I haven't read all the testimony. I'm not live streaming the cases, I, you know, but from what I read, and I read, I get three newspapers a day still, <laughs> and I read a lot online and I follow it. And each, almost each and every time, I am astonished at the acquittals. I am astonished when, in most cases, police officers are found not guilty of what they did. And if you listen to the first season of Buried Truths, you see what that was about. You can see how in the 1940s there was just this presumption of black criminality. Uh, it was just part of everything. I, I, I was born something like six months after the Isaiah Nixon was killed. So I'm raised in that, I'm marinated <laughs> in that culture to, to believe that, that blacks were inferior, that, uh, you know, I have, a, I have childhood books to look at, you know, in, in which just make fun of black people. And even though my parents were saying, don't believe that stuff, okay? And they were very open-minded and didn't want me to ever disrespect anybody, but they were always a counterpoint to what was out there. And so if you're predisposed to believe in black criminality and you're faced as a juror in a case uh, in which two white police officers, you know, claim that they did something in, in self-defense, there's a tendency to believe it, especially when the attorneys played on their whiteness and on their white heritage and would say, I mean, you can look at the transcript of what the lawyers said defending the two white men who killed Emmett Till. And they both said, you know, they appealed to the jurors' Anglo-Saxon heritage, 
you know, don't abandon your heritage. Your forefathers will spin in their graves if you can't bring back a verdict of not guilty. And they use those languages, those, they use those words, you know, like birthright and heritage as code words. And what I don't know about today is whether the lawyers are, I mean, the juries are never going to be all white today anymore, you know, but I'm not sure what it is that they're saying that's triggering these verdicts, that these exculpatory verdicts. Uh, for the the white police officers, I th- I believe it has a lot to do with the fear that they felt and they didn't know and it was not they they weren't intending to kill anybody they were whatever it was in the heat of the moment and defending themselves I I, I would believe it's still a self defense alibi. And mentioning you know growing up and having those books and your parents as a counterpoint I mean the obvious in telling these stories when you talk about civil rights cold cases is you are a white man. Mm-hmm. Did you find it difficult to discover information or to get people to talk or want to share stories with you, having your race being the first thing they see? And why isn't a black man telling these stories? Did you ever feel some type of animosity? Um, I would say that I, in the cases that we've looked into, have never faced any animosity. I've almost always faced, from the African-Americans now, I've almost always faced um, an openness in in the Isaiah Nixon case, the case you know that Barry, season one of Barry Truths, uh, that this episode is tied to. Um, the families, the descendants of the African Americans who so boldly decided they were going to vote and organize people to vote and did so, and who paid a price for it, they were totally open, totally available and totally appreciative that they were going to learn something. I mean, it's not as if back in 1948, you know, the FBI came around to the home of Dover Carter or Isaiah Nixon or or John Harris and said, well, we're going to tell you what we found here, okay? They didn't. And that happens in, in case after case after case that I'm familiar with across the South. There was never any attempt. The FBI, even conscientious FBI agents, didn't feel a need to then circle back and tell the families of the victims what they'd found or what they didn't find or the status of the case. So this is all new information for most of these families. There is hostility from some whites, and I've seen it. Uh, Generally, it no longer expresses itself as hostility, but a real charming, gentlemanly response. Well, let me see what I can find for you on that, and then never never try. Call me, did you find anything? No, we're still looking. You, okay, find anything? No, we're still looking. You know, and it just doesn't ever happen. You hit on the 50% of history is stories, telling stories. But the other half, um, I think, is, you know, history is our version of a time capsule and how that's captured. And talking about years and, and, and archives and how we look at things, why is it so important to tell these stories now? I mean, was is the timing perfect because it's 2018, or should these have been stories that were told 10 years ago? Well, I think they should have been told 70 years ago. I think the story of Isaiah Nixon and Dover Carter and John Harris should have been told in 1948. I mean, it, the killing of Isaiah Nixon wasn't even mentioned in the local newspaper in his hometown because black people weren't news. When you talk about wanting to inspire students, ignite something in them. At the end of the podcast, connecting the dots, um, having the voting rights, do you think this has been successful? 
one thing we discover is we want to ignite the students, but it's not about igniting their passions. <laughs> not at all. I, although you can't help it. You hear these stories and you can't help do that. But it's about igniting their brains. And the distinction is that when students are handing in their earliest papers, okay, and they, you know, I call it there's this sudden excess of, you know, this sudden uh, flurry of adverbial excess. You know, they're just using outrageously as, you know, all the time, you know. And then when James Brager outrageously was stopped for a fifth time in two weeks, you know, or, you know, when, um, when, the Jim A. Johnson outrageously pulled out his gun. Uh, you know, there's a lot of emotion that they pump into those first papers, and we just sit there and scratch those words out and said, that is not what we're doing here. And, and when students get off on their soapbox, that is not what we're doing. We are, we are writing history here. And if you want there's history can be persuasive. History can be, uh, is, is, is to clarify and illuminate and elucidate. And if you think the truth, you have an angle on the truth, which our podcast seems to have, uh, then you can present it that way. But you've got to support everything you say and everything you write. I like to see them come at it with passion, but I'm real clear to them. I, I need you to do the brain work here, and they do. Now, this next question is going to sound like a therapist, and how does this make you feel? But I want to look at that in the point of when you're seeing these civil rights cases that have played out, and, and like you said, the murder, that's not even in the paper. And when you see the students who are putting this emotion into it, and it's it's hard to look at those and look at what's happening now, knowing you know history repeats itself in a lot of ways. When you see everything that's happening now when you were growing up and what happened then, how do you feel when you walk away from this podcast, when you go home and you just reflect on all the files, all the things that were buried? I mean, what type of emotions do you experience? Some of that comes through in the podcast when I found myself and under the incredible direction and tutelage of Dave Barriswain, the producer. And sometimes I would have to say under his great restraint, just to let me riff. And some of that riff you hear in the opening meditation as I'm walking through the woods of, on the, the farmland that Isaiah Nixon's family still owns. And I ask that question, you know, who were we? Who were we as a people that we allowed this to happen? And I get emotional about these things. I get emotional about the cases, about the instances of what happened, about all that stuff, you know. And I get emotional when I think about the broad rush of history that kind of swept these people up. And no one was there to take the time to record their lives and, and the meaning that they had. That's why this remark the remarkable turn of events in episode five, in which students discover something the family had lost for 67 years, and that's Isaiah Nixon's gravesite. When, when that happened, it's unbelievable how emotional that is for everybody. And yet, the most important discovery is, is not what you found, but what, what you learned. It's not what you came upon, but what you walked away with. And I'm not just being glib with that. I mean, I, that's, I, I'm overjoyed by that discovery. It, it reconnected so many people. It's what got 
the family of the men who killed him to want to talk with us. And it changed the lives of those students who did it. I'm hoping that we all walk away realizing this was just an unspeakably horrible time in history. And we were, as people, and I'm talking about our forebears, you know, and there was unspeakably horrific actions by people who thought they were doing the right thing for what? I don't know, white purity? And they were getting leadership at the top of the government throughout, not necessarily the national government, but the state government, that this was okay. You know, I'm hoping the students will be ignited to keep looking at history and see what the patterns are. You'll see in, in in this podcast, we reveal a lot of patterns. There's a pattern to the way white people responded to black people. Um, There's a pattern to the way black people responded to white people, and yet it was a different pattern from what the white people said it was. Because the white people said, oh, the black people were responding violently to us. And there was so little evidence of that. And, you know, I I would say at the same time, it's today, this whole idea of voter ID, that, you know, the reason that we are told we need voter ID and all these other limitations is because of pervasive voter fraud. And there's just been no evidence of that. And look, I say this having led an entire newsroom, a 600-person newsroom, into an investigation of voter fraud in Philadelphia that changed the outcome of an election, led to a a federal judge overturning the election, and that fraud was perpetrated by Democrats. I mean, it was just an egregious example of of the Democrats trying to steal an election to take control of the the state government in Harrisburg. I know it can happen, but other than that one, I've not seen any others that are significant enough. So what I'm trying to say is I hope students learn to be extremely inquisitive and, and demanding and almost prosecutorial in their questions about what public figures say. And when you talk about Isaiah Nixon, Emmett Till, MLK, um, and even today with Trayvon Martin, is all lives that to us we say were cut short, but that's one thing that they have in common is they left a legacy of some sort. What do you want the legacy of this podcast to be? I think, you know, different constituencies sort of want to come away with different messages. And I think if for white people, (laughs) it's an opportunity to look quite closely at who we were and, and try to draw any parallels to today and ask themselves, is that what we want? And and the greatest parallel that one might look at is whether we follow blindly whether we're following blindly and just buying into what someone says without questioning it, without, as I say, having a prosecutorial approach to it. Now, I don't mean a cynical approach, but to go at them skeptically. So that's the universal message I think we can all come away from, because I think if people had asked those questions back in the 1940s, wait, are you saying all this about black people and this about and this and this, you know? I think if they had looked closely, they would realize they're being had. For the people who are listening to this podcast now, what do you want this to do for them? Is it to inspire change, to make people more aware, to educate? How should the response to this podcast look? You know, I have no agenda. I uh, I didn't come at this. I don't come at this class that I teach with an agenda. 
it's a it's a it's a way of awakening in young minds something that I wished had been more awakened in me, and that is a love for history and an appreciation for history and an understanding that history can lead to incredible stories. These are incredible stories. If listeners listen to Barry Truce and if they like the stories, all they're hearing is history. You know, they're not hearing anything more than history. Now, presentation matters. I know that. You know, I mean, there's um, some fabulous historians, extremely wonderful historians, who have trouble telling stories. Okay? They're also journalists who have trouble telling stories. Okay? And so it's, you know, it's something that can, no matter how much history you learn and how much history you teach, it can fall flat. And I wanted to teach a class that was different and that didn't fall flat. I wouldn't know how to teach history the way a classic historian teaches it. The only way you can do it is by involving people who can go off and learn it and bring it back in. And I think that's a great way to learn, to let the students go find things. And they're learning. You know, one of the first notes I got from a student about the podcast is, a, a, I don't want to call him a kid. He's not now because he, he graduated in, I think, 2011 or 2012. And he went to Detroit, and he, he's in the mortgage business. And he sent a note saying how much he loved the class. He says, I have gone into the mortgage business, and it's unbelievable what I learned in your class uh, as far as research skills that had, have advanced my career. You know, how to come at a problem believing the answer is there. And in case it's in the cases of a history question, that the, that the answers are lying in some file, in some attic, in some closet, and so that was my, my goal was to ignite that, the, what ignites me, you know, uh, to, to discover there's an archive somewhere that has an answer that, you know. So I don't have an agenda and a, a political agenda on this. At the same time, there are times when we do connect the dots, as you're saying, and we do that in, in this podcast at the very end. We connect dots. This is a voting rights case. No one would have called it that way, by the way, in 1948. You wouldn't hear the phrase voting rights, but that's exactly what it was. I mean, a man's killed for voting. Um, I mean, this is, what, 17 years before the Voting Rights Act passed. You know, I, that was not my goal, but now that I see how history is turning out and I see that, what, 20 states are making moves to suppress the vote even more, why that that I would I would be uh, remiss if I didn't mention that I think it would be irresponsible if I, if we didn't mention that there are echoes in history, and there are echoes in the history of voter suppression that are worth mentioning. Well, Hank, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for coming in and sitting with us and discussing some of your motivations and your background and Barry Truths. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Ross. I sure appreciate it as well. That was Barry Truth's host, Hank Klibanoff, in conversation with WABE reporter Ross Terrell. Remember, please go to surveynerds.com slash barrytruths to take our survey. Follow us on social media. We're at Barry Truth's podcast to see documents, photos, and videos related to Isaiah Nixon's story. And if you haven't already reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do so. It'll help more people find us. Thanks for listening. Barry Truth's is a production of WABE Atlanta. 
Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm-hmm. W-A-B-E. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.